Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello, how are you? Do you think we're like some those people who sort of fake their own demise and then in order to get lots of praise? Don't people usually do that for the life insurance payout? I don't think there is one of those for Reasons to be Cheerful. No, no. Um, as we said last week, the podcast in its current form, we're, we're drawing that to a close, yeah. but we'd like to carry on chatting. We and would. We've had a lot of nice email from people saying... Yeah. Yeah, if you're going to carry on chatting, I wouldn't mind eavesdropping in on that. So we're just figuring out what that may or may not be. But I don't think it's quite like announcing your farewell concert and then doing a comeback tour the following week. Was it Sinatra who was known for doing more farewells? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You think we're not in Sinatra territory? I don't think we're quite in Sinatra territory in a number of ways, both good and bad. For those who weren't, didn't tune in last week, maybe we should sort of say why we... Yeah, if if for some reason you didn't hear last week's episode, there's going to be an election sooner or later. For Jeff's Neighbourhood Watch. For my Neighbourhood Watch. Do you think that joke is still funny? I mean, it wasn't that funny the first time, but do you think the joke's still funny? No, no, but let's uh, (laughs) let's wring every last drop out of it, as is our want. Fine. Um, So we've had to make a decision to... Uh, say goodbye to the podcast in its current form with all the guests that we have on and the research. And we're trying to figure out if there's an appetite and if there's a way that Ed and I can carry on having a chat every week or so and making you part of that. Yeah. So do let us know what you think. The email address is reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com and the website is cheerfulpodcast.com. There's a form on there if you'd rather do it that way. But regardless, next week is the final episode of Reasons to be Cheerful as you have known and loved or known and tolerated it, known and endured it. It'll be a banger. Is that right? It will be. Is that the right terminology? I, th- I, th- I think so, yeah. I don't think we sound like a couple of men in the 50s trying to use young people's <laughs> expressions when you say banger. I think it's absolutely fine and natural in our mouths, yeah. So I wanted to tell you something about that, that which isn't in my reason to be cheerful, but I was cycling home a couple of days ago 
And I certainly had the longest conversation about political philosophy that I've had while riding up or down Kentish Town Road. Were you getting breathless? Well, basically, at the lights on the cycle lane, uh, a, a nice young guy called, I think Arthur, his name was, stopped me and said he hoped that Labour won the election. Didn't mention the podcast, actually. <laughs> and uh, started saying that he was studying philosophy and I started asking who his favourite philosophers were he said he quite liked thomas hobbes anyway and then we'd get to each traffic light and we'd carry on this conversation about sort of political philosophy it got into john rules and our episode with daniel chandler i was basically just trying to find a way of either mentioning the podcast or getting a selfie with him uh and uh can, can i ask you i want you yeah. to answer this honestly was was he peddling like mad trying to get away from you but you kept catching up with him and bothering him more at every set of traffic lights I think possibly well, look out for Ed. Maybe I should have a sort of sandwich board on me <laughs> saying, you know, fancy a conversation about political philosophy. <laughs> what do you think? Coming soon to uh, a set of traffic lights near you. You could tour the country. Exactly, exactly. Should we talk about what we're talking about this week? Well, this week we want to give people some inspiration to take their own action and find their own reasons to be cheerful as we draw this version of reasons to be cheerful to a close. Um my former colleague Mark Steers talks a lot about the politics of ordinary hope and how many of the solutions to our biggest problems are already out there. And we'll be hearing from three people who are doing some really creative and inspiring things that are making a difference, all powered by and for uh, the community. We'll be talking to Froy Legaspi from Citizens at UK, which has been putting power into citizens' hands for over 30 years. Emily Bolton, who's working on a social renewal programme through Grimsby Town Football Club. And we'll be talking to Dan McCullum, who set up a community energy project in Wales in 1998 and now boasts the UK's largest rooftop solar project. Jeff, what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, you know, my son has, uh, has got into Doctor Who over the past 12 months. Mm -hmm. There is some new 60th anniversary book that he really wanted to get. And he'd learned that the best place to get hold of this was by going to Comic-Con, which was in London last weekend. Are you aware of a Comic-Con? Yes, it's a sort of it's like Labour Party conference for sort of... For people who are interested in, I guess, sort of broadly speaking, you could say cult culture. Cult culture, right. And... We went along. It was at the XL in London, which I guess is the sort of place where they would usually hold the ideal home exhibition. Yes. And there were thousands and thousands of people there, at least half of whom were dressed in the most fantastic costumes. Wow. And then we found our way to the BBC Studios Doctor Who stand, and Gene loved it because he got to see both Chuty Gatwa and David Tennant's costumes wow. from the upcoming Doctor Who episodes. But all these Doctor Who fans had congregated there and we ended up talking to, I would say, half a dozen, maybe ten different people, all dressed as David Tennant, with a couple of, like, Colin Bakers and Sylvester McCoys and Peter Davison's pottering around. How fantastic. And one of them was a young creator called Christelle D, who I now follow on Instagram. Right. The most incredible creator of Doctor Who-themed Instagram reels. 
including one that did cause a little bit of uh, a rift in our family because it was a very intricate demonstration on how to carve uh, a Doctor Who 60th anniversary pumpkin, which Gene then really wanted us to do for him. And I said, no, this is, uh, this is, this is beyond our skills. I thought there was a sort of gourd issue sort of on its way. Well, we're not short of the gourds. Yes. The Halloween decorations have come down, but the various pumpkins and gourds and the autumnal wreath on our front door, my wife says, are staying until the end of November. Have you noticed since Sarah's, I think, yes. imported this tradition to the yes. UK? I've noticed more, lots more of them. There are more yes. and more people with various squashes on the outside of the houses. That's some kind of weird confirmation bias thing going on. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is not a reason to be cheerful. It's rather sad, but I did want to note um, to note this and say something about it, which is Pete Betts, who we had um, on the podcast, I think a couple of times, including from COP26, uh, has sadly passed away from, from a brain tumour. Now, for those who don't know, Pete Betts was... Um, the lead negotiator for the UK, I think for something like 25 years, or a very long, long period of time. He certainly worked in climate diplomacy for 25 years. He was the uh, European Union's lead negotiator. And he was an absolutely amazing, amazing person who was an incredible, you know, he was a civil servant, and he was a climate advocate. I met him on my pretty much my first day as the climate change secretary he was incredibly loyal and sort of nice to me and carried on working with me after 2015 um and you know he he got struck down by this brain tumor uh something like 18 months ago and there's been a real outpouring for him from the climate world um, and I just wanted to sort of mark that, particularly as he's somebody we had on the podcast and he was a, just a, a, an all-round amazing, amazing person. And he, he was somebody who made a lot of difference. He made a lot of difference and he cared passionately about the subject. He was incredibly well-respected all around the world, um, all political parties, just somebody of in, immense expertise, in, incredible values, incredible sense of humour, um, and and he's going to be just incredibly sadly, sadly missed by, by me and many others. All right, we are joined by senior organiser at Citizens UK, Froy Legaspi. Hello. Hi there, Jeff. And I mean, what better endorsement of Citizens UK than that it was involved in making Ed Miliband the man he is today? <laughs> I'm not sure we can quite claim credit for that. <laughs> Post-election, Ed, I think. You did some training, didn't you? Did some... I did. Tra- yeah, I did five-day training uh, after the 2015 general election, I think in Denmark Hill. Do you ever wish you'd done it before the 2015 in general election? Yes, yes, many times. Uh, <laughs> and it was a transformative experience. And Freud, there are some rumours that Ed participated in some boxing. Yes, one of our colleagues was an amateur boxer. And, you know, when you do five days, it's uh, quite heavy going. And so bring up the energy level. I think she got everyone to participate in some boxing drills, so I'm told. Sadly, I wasn't there, so I didn't get to witness it myself. I I, I think this is sort of, um, 
you know, one of those sort of rumours that takes on a life of its own. I mean, no, I think it happened, but you're repressing the memory. Maybe it's good. Maybe, do, you, do you think it'll be good for my credibility, Jeff? I think so, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so tell us a bit about the organisation and, and some of the successes it's had over the years. Yeah, sure. So Citizens UK, we've been going since uh, 1989. Our founder, Neil Jameson, who sadly passed away early this year, uh, brought community organising uh, over from the States. Um, originally was a social worker, uh, was really frustrated that he would just seem to be just putting sticking plasters and band-aids on solutions and really wanted to get to the root of the issue. So learn about community organising as a method and as a craft and brought it over to the UK and did what we called listening campaigns. We did some in East London, and we just heard stories of families working two, three jobs just to put food on a family table. And so that really morphed into the, a campaign for a real living wage, which has now been like hugely successful. I think there's now 14,000 living wage employers with a collective impact of over £2 billion extra in the pockets of hardworking people. And what's really just powerful about this method is the fact that it's you know people on the ground, people who are affected by these issues and, and the organisations they work with who are really driving this change. And Freud, tell us a little bit about how you became a community organiser. Yeah, well, in fact, I was kind of like one of, I guess, one of the leaders that they were working with on the ground. They knocked on my door in my council estate in London, and I grew up there like all my life. Whereabouts was that? Down in South London. So what, they literally knocked on your door, did they? They literally knocked on my door. What did the person from Citizens say? Because this will give our <laughs> listeners an insight into their method. There's not many people knock on my door. I thought they were Jehovah's Witnesses at the time. Right, sometimes I, I like, like to have a natter sometimes yeah. when you're not doing things <laughs> yeah. better. And, and they're just asking me questions like, you know, what was it like living here? And I was like, well, could be worse, could be better. I mean, like for me, I was, I mean, I always voted, I always kind of like yeah. political in that way, but I never did anything that was never politically active, never a member of a political party, never a member of a like, trade union, nothing like that. And they started telling me, well, we had stories about your neighbours and the windows. And and I said, yeah, you're, you're right. That is a big issue for me and my family. It's freezing during the winter time. And what were you doing at that point? Uh, at the time, I, I was actually working for the same local authority I campaigned against, which was a, <laughs> an interesting experience. I don't recommend it. <laughs> I was in my mid-20s during this time, so fairly early on in my career. And I will never forget, Ed, like he then asked me, so what have you done about that then? And I remember lying in bed that night thinking, man, this is an issue that really affects me and my family. And I don't feel I could do anything about that, not even report it to the council. Even though you're working for the local authority? Yeah, I was at a very junior role back then. So you lay in bed that night and thought about what they'd said to you, and then what happened next? And again, uh, there was this. Me- they, they were planning this meeting in the other side of the council estate, and I was umming and ahhing, should I go, should I not go? But I got a text message uh, from the community organiser at that time, and I went to this meeting, and there was a good 40 of people there. And I was like, oh, wow, there's a lot of people here. Uh, presumably your neighbours, near enough, who, who you didn't know, presumably. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, Ed. Like, I'm I really reflecting on this afterwards. I mean, despite the fact that I grew up there all my life, and, you know, the council estate had, you know, issues, certainly not the worst part. But I, I think before that episode, I knew maybe about six, eight people on a first-name basis. And then afterwards, I, I knew definitely more closer to 50 on a first-name basis. And just how much more safe I felt in the local area how much more connected. How did you go from going to that meeting to ending up working for Citizens UK? 
we have built residence groups across the estate. Uh, we were working very closely with local faith groups, local schools, led to this big event, 100 people. Um, so I was kind of one of the co-chairs with some of my neighbors and some local uh, leaders there. And the local authority came and just with 100 people in the room, I mean, the local authority agreed to work with us. And then we saw change. You know, now there's new double glazed windows in my state. There's a new football pitch with AstroTurf for the young people to, to play football. Wow. On. There's this method we use around like how to engage with people called what we call like the relational meeting or the one-to-one. And so clearly I was very interested and engaged. And uh, one of the community organizers, we had a conversation. And, and that realization that, you know, deep down, I wanted to do this work. I wanted to go out in the world and make a change, but maybe deep down I had doubts that someone like me could, or I didn't feel like I had permission to. You know, bluntly, growing up, I thought politics was something that you did, Ed. It was never felt that something like me growing up could do. Working class background, my family are from a Filipino background. You were leading some of the campaigns then, yeah? Yeah. So we did some more listening because after kind of you get some early success, you want to do more. And so I remember sitting down with one, one of my neighbors, Portuguese lady, oh, fantastic food. And just asking her son very casually, if you could change one thing in the council estate, what would you change? And he said the football pitch. And he just told the stories of how this, you know, it was the only football pitch in the local area that had a hard surface, like the surface was broken and was very slippery when it was wet. And so people, they couldn't really play football uh, during those times. And I asked him, well, how many young people would work with you to build this as a campaign? And he said, loads of people. And so he brought, we built a team of eight people, of young people and their parents. There was lots of energy for it. And we, we literally had a negotiating table on the football pitch, young people on one side, housing officers from the local council on the other, and these young people you know, making the ask. And, and what's really powerful about this wasn't the fact that it was just young people on the side of the table, but they had allies, other chairs of residence groups there. I guess the key question is, like, you know, what is the role of communities and people on the ground to kind of like raise issues and work constructively with people in positions of power. So, you know, for me, this is not about kind of like calling for a revolution and, you know, tearing down the local authority, but actually how how do we create movement on the ground? So issues which might not necessarily have been heard are heard by people who have the power to do something to change that situation. And that's sort of the secret source then of Citizens UK is that you described, as, as many of us feel, that politics is some, something that happens to you. It's top down. And Citizens UK is there to give people a platform or, or a confidence or whatever it is to bring the things that really matter to people who can make a difference. Absolutely. I've heard one person describe Citizens UK as we make mountains out of molehills. Great. So, for example, you know, before our living wage campaign, how many people, you know, thought about the plight of like low wage workers, like clean and security staff? Now, now that's a part of a mainstream conversation. And since you've been with Citizens UK, what what are some of the campaigns and, and specifically wins that you're most proud of? You know, I've had a bit of a journey. I've moved from from South London to East London, now to North London. Uh, but in East London, we did some like great work where we were doing some listening, working with organisations who are teaching migrants and refugees English, and we were doing some listening work around them. We also did some listening work around with like six home colleges, and and the the stories that were coming out was like a real anxiety about the ability to try and find 
work and well-paid work. And so we thought, well, well, actually, how what is our role here to think about these organizations to create pipelines of opportunities for, for young people and migrants? And so we launched campaigns. I think about BT Sports, who are in the Olympic Park. We had what we call a public action. We had about 70 young people and allies from the community outside, you know, pro- proactively asking, can we work together to create a, a paid work experience placement, uh, which which is successful. We had these young people creating banners saying, don't leave us on a bench, BT Sport. It's like all, all fun. And we delivered cake and a letter asking to meet. So I think if you bring a letter and a cake, you can't call that a protest. We like we want a working relationship. We want a public relationship with you, and also some really exciting uh, campaigns working with Hackney Council um, to f- create paid work experience placements for for migrants and refugees. I was talking to some young people the other day who are young ambassadors in relation to COP twenty eight, which is taking place later on this year, and I found myself quoting the citizens' mantra. You only get the justice, you have the power to compel. What does that mean in your work? We really intentionally think about power. For us, it's a truth for us that you cannot win any change without power. I mean, that's true for you in your type of politics. And that's also true for us in terms of the way that we practice our politics. But the thing we're really interested in is that if you have a road and you have maybe like a residence group on that road, you might have a, a school, maybe a faith group uh, a little way down the line. Now, they might all have a sense of like, we all know that that road crossing over there isn't very safe. Or we, they might all have a sense that, ah, oh, actually our families are under pressure because they don't earn a real living wage. Now, individually, those organizations might be able to do some things, like they might be able to set up a food bank, for example, or be able to like provide financial aid. But if those organizations work together more collectively and be more powerful working together, then it's more difficult for you know people in government or companies and corporations to ignore that when you're bringing so many different types of people and so many people together advocating on the same platform for change. Why do you think this is such an uncommon way of doing things in this country? What is it about the way things are set up that means this power of community is is left untapped so often? I mean, whenever I organise, be it originally in my councillor state and others, I think the thing you're really fighting is like apathy. Sometimes people people sometimes don't believe change is possible or they're taught to believe that change is not possible um, just from what they see in our politics and, and what happens day to day. I also think the big challenge is around kind of legitimacy and, and who has the who has the power to initiate agendas, who has the power to think about, yeah, we were interested in you know, thinking about our neighborhoods and our cities and our country, and we want to see disenacted. I remember very clearly when we were organizing our council estate, um, the local authority was not happy about this. And I remember an interaction between one of their kind of senior people and one of the priests that we were working with. And they were questioning, you know, like, who who are you to come into our neighborhoods and like work with our people? 
um like you know on what legitimacy or what grounds are you doing this the priest shot back very quickly he said well i noticed that your council has only been in existence since 1965 we've been here serving this community for the past 800 900 years so i think we have plenty of legitimacy to think about the local area and the people that are in it and so i think there is sometimes this kind of feeling that people in power that we know what we are doing and if you just let us get on with it and execute the plan, things be, will be okay. And I don't think that's uniform across kind of like politics, but you do get a sense of that. Whereas with some politicians, I think they get there is a role for communities and civil society to have a seat at a table because, you know, bluntly, they can see things that when you're at that position, you might not be able to see. I think that local people have an expertise in, in themselves, right? Sometimes the processes that power creates are like, oh, yeah, interact with our community engagement body and what have you. I think it's more designed to keep people at bay rather than bring people in. I mean, that's the way I often perceive it. Let's end by asking you, Freud, what advice would you give to our listeners who might really kind of relate to some of the stories you're telling uh, about your experience before you're working for citizens and what they can do to make change happen? Well, firstly, don't do things alone. You'd be surprised how many people I meet in this world who are trying to make change all by themselves. So join a group, build a group if you can't join one, Um, like build something, join something. But also secondly, think about what you have the power to do. If you think about climate change, convincing 10 people in your community to sign up to 100% renewable energy will do something meaningful about that issue. So if you can't do a lot, do a little. Uh, Well, look, it's fantastic conversation and incredibly inspiring uh, to speak to you, Froyla Gaspi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Jeff. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Emily Bolton, who is founder of Our Future. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Can you tell us what Our Future is doing in Grimsby and, and why the town's football club is at the centre of it? Yeah, very happy to. So I guess it's worth starting with what Our Future is. And it's working 
to do two things. First is to unlock the potential of a place and the great people in it. And alongside that, kind of harness the opportunities of the green industrial revolution so that deindustrialized communities are at the, on the front foot as we move to this new economy. And in Grimsby, what we're trying to do is show that it's possible. The football club is really central to all of this. Actually, there's a real magic and joy to all of this work because it really centers on a love of place and a love of home. And football clubs are this kind of untapped resource that sits across our country where, you know, there aren't that many things that we belong to anymore, where we share an identity. But actually, football clubs are this kind of natural locus, this common narrative that creates a kind of sense of place and also connects the future with the long history of the town. So, you know, Grimsby Town Football Club's been around for 145 years. So the conversations about the future are rooted in the past. And how did you come to be involved in this? So I have spent about 20 years at the intersection of business, finance, social change, first in California, and then I moved back here about 15 years ago. I set up the first social impact bond in Peterborough Prison. So lots of my work has been about how do we reimagine how we address social issues. On a personal front, my life then also changed pretty fundamentally about, well, over three years ago, in March 2020, I got COVID very badly. And whilst I kept trying to re-engage with life, I got long COVID and couldn't really do anything. And I realised as I went through this kind of roller coaster of sort of snakes and ladders, feeling that I was on square 80 and I was nearly at the finish line and then sliding back to square one again, that I needed to kind of fundamentally rebuild my life. And in the process of doing that and lying in the dark and in moments of lucidity, I was a sort of observer of the world around me rather than a participant in it. And I recognised that we were living in historic times where we were facing these huge threats, challenges, the climate emergency, inequality. And I, I felt as if my generation, Gen X, that we've been too compliant and that personally I hadn't been brave enough. I feel like we have coloured in the lines given to us by previous generations rather than really reimagined the future that we could be building now and how we could get there. And I guess, you know, it wasn't easy, but the blessing of those moments of space is that I committed that if or as I got better, my work would focus on building that future today. God, what an incredible perspective shift to come out of something quite terrible. Tell us about Grimsby itself then. Uh, what is it about the town that fits the criteria you were talking about? So I think, as you can tell, I'm not from Grimsby. And that's kind of worth recognising and is something of a paradox in this conversation. But my co-founder of um, Our Future is from Grimsby and owns the football club. And when we came together, there was a kind of serendipity that we both had a kind of similar vision of what we could create in this country I think that Grimsby is a microcosm of the kind of needs and opportunities faced by many communities across this country. It um, 
was depleted by the loss of the fishing industry that not only led to a kind of a change in the economic fortunes, but also to long term social deprivation. But it's also this nexus potentially of the green industrial revolution. Grimsby sits on the Humber and estuary that accounts for 40 percent of the UK's industrial emissions. It will have to be central to us meeting net zero. It is also access to Hornsey 2, the world's largest offshore wind farm. And there's kind of three elements that we're working on pretty strongly. How do people have power and control over their homes, their communities, and then their jobs or the work for the future? So in terms of the homes piece, uh, there's some amazing community entrepreneurs in the East Marsh of Grimsby. I think it's the 25th lowest income ward in the country. There is such a kind of vitality and energy to drive change. Um, a few years ago, they were frustrated by both the large number of absentee landlords who just didn't care about the housing, the quality that some of that housing was left in, and this feeling that actually if their neighbourhood was going to transform, they needed to own it and own more of it. And so they started buying homes for their community. They had a community share issue last year. We had a community housing summit about a month ago where 70 people came to share expertise, both from the East Marsh, but also from around the country. Tell us, how did you then get in touch with Jason Stockwood, the, the chairman of Grimsby Town Football Club, and get involved with him to do our future? So as I was lying in bed, reading, looking at what was going on in the world, and in the moments that I could emerge from the world, over time, a few people said, you've got to speak to Jason. He cares about the same things as you. And so we met and realised that we shared hugely similar values, beliefs, that he has such a deep love for Grimsby and his hometown. And that I brought a really different skill set. And we thought together, should we start working with all the brilliant people in Grimsby and start seeing what was possible and bringing it to life? So... The first step was to kind of go out and identify and bring together the brilliant leaders that already exist and haven't been waiting around for permission to, to do the work. We also have a lot of events that are really joyful and celebratory about the change in the town. I need to ask a question on Ed's behalf because I know him so well. I know what will be bugging him in his head. How have you gone from the climate in California to Grimsby? Because, Ed, you, you, I think you'd love to be governor of California, wouldn't oh, you, Oh, do you Ed? think that's possible, Jeff? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? When I was at university in California, uh, my degree certificate was um, signed by Arnold Schwarzenegger, which I think is like, a, I mean, this is a total digression. People often confuse me for him, actually, Emily. Uh, do they? <laughs> um, the Schwarzenegger of Doncaster. So it's a long time, Jeff, since I've lived in California, but... Um, do you know what? I don't know if you've been to Grimsby. It's absolutely beautiful. It literally kind of fills my soul. The sky is enormous. The sea and the kind of stretch over the ocean. As we talked about earlier, I am an outsider. But one of the upsides about being an outsider is you can see some things with fresh eyes. And one of the things that struck me immediately was this huge disparity between the story told both locally and nationally about Grimsby and the reality. Like, 
there are amazing world-class people with brilliant ideas doing amazing things in every sector. And that just doesn't kind of carry across into the national picture. Part of the reason we're doing this episode is because our podcast is sadly coming to an end in its current form. And we just want to sort of give listeners as many tools as possible to sort of work out how they can make change happen. What, what advice would you give? The first bit of practical advice I would give people is to do it. Um, because I think it's really easy for all of us to think, oh, but I don't know enough or I don't know all the answers. And none of us do. But I think that actually getting involved will be the most uplifting thing you can do in your life. The second would be to go and find your co-conspirators, because that will be what fills you up. And they will be unlikely collaborators, not people like you at all. And then the final piece would be approach it with the values and ethos of the world you want to build. Love, solidarity, all of those things. And then I guess the last practical thing is if people really do want to do it, come and join us. It's an open tent. We're happy to share everything we're doing. If you want to do it in another community, we're having a big party again in November. Well, look, it's been great to talk to you, uh, Emily Bolton, founder of Our Future. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Great to join you both. Thank you. All right. With us now is Dan McCallum, who is co-founder and manager of Owl Ammon Tower. Hello, Dan. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Ed. Great to have you. And I'm going to um, I'm going to get you to explain what uh, Owl Ammon Tower is because we we wanted to focus. You're looking for compliments on your pronunciation, aren't you, Jeff? Oh yeah. Well, how how did I do? Yeah, that's very good, actually. Yeah, well done, Jeff. Okay. A lot of people just call us A A T. Maybe maybe that maybe that's what I'll do for the uh, for the rest of the interview. We wanted to focus on energy as one of the ways in which communities can come together to lead change locally. Um, so you, you founded it back in 1998. So you were an early, an early mover on this. What did you see even then that, that now many politicians are still struggling to grasp? I think we, we were looking at ways to help regenerate a former coal mining community. And we were looking at what you know, local assets we have. And an obvious one was, was wind, wind energy. Awel means wind in, in Welsh. And like a lot of projects across the UK, you know, took, took that forward as volunteers um, and learnt along the way. Even when we started, climate change wasn't actually that, that high on the agenda. Um, so our own focus has sort of shifted on you know, local regeneration towards much more tr- trying to tackle climate change. And there are some great examples of community energy projects around the country, including in Lawrence Western Bristol, which is now Britain's tallest onshore wind turbine. Tell us a bit about the two co-ops you founded, one wind, one solar, because, you know, you were very much, as Jeff has said, an early adopter. Yeah, I mean, I think we're very similar, actually, to Lawrence Western Wind Turbine in terms of the motivations. They're, they're looking to you know, regenerate that area of Bristol and provide an asset to, to support the work that their charity you know, does. When we started, actually, we, we worked quite a lot with some of the islands in Scotland um, who had you know, taken on ownership of some of those islands. And then we're looking at ways to help regenerate them and use local assets. So they were looking at wind energy. So that's what led us to develop the idea of a community wind farm at Awell. And then, you know, that it took a long time for us, um, but it finally got built and was working in 2017. Wow. So it took a long time. It took so what, 19 <laughs> yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. 
Wow. Explain why it took so long. Well, no, more more planning permissions. Um, Unfortunately, there weren't many examples of community wind farms around. So we got turned down three times for planning permission. Some of the projects in Scotland went straight ahead, got got built. And that actually did help us ultimately get planning permission. But in a sense, there's almost no point looking back because that agenda has changed. It's just that there's a greater political understanding of what community energy can bring and just more tangible examples for people to look around and see. And, and, and actually then we, we, you know, we got planning permission really quickly for a ground mount solar scheme up on our wind, next to our wind farm, um, which went straight through planning without any problem. So it's almost important not to look backwards on some of the problems we've had. Sure. And how much money, Dan, is it now generating for the community and what's that being used for? Well, the turnover of the wind farm is about £1.2 million a year. Um, so it's enabled us, as you mentioned, to set up another rooftop solar co-op called EGNI, which has got about 100 sites across South Wales on schools, community buildings and businesses. And, and this year saves about over £300,000 in electricity costs. Um, It also enabled us to buy the former school in the village next to the wind farm. Um, And then we're regenerating that at at the moment as a low-carbon arts and um, climate change and enterprise centre, which will create local jobs. We also employ an education officer who does a lot of work in in schools. How big a part of it was, was getting the funding to get it up on its feet in the first place? How easy was that? That was easy, Jeff. Was it? <laughs> yeah, it was the permissions. It doesn't sound like bit. something that'd be easy. Yeah, no, we we um we we set it up as a co-op. Um, we raised three million pounds through a share offer. There's a well-trodden path, really, for projects which have got all the permissions. You know, or you know, co-ops like Energy for All have led the way. So the, we got three million pounds through that share offer, and then. And then Welsh Government actually gave us some bridging finance to help it get built, the wind farm. And then that was refinanced by Triodos Bank in Bristol, who specialise in, you know, um, the smaller end of wind energy. But the whole project was about was about £8.25 million. Uh-huh. But the money, honestly, was the easy part. How interesting. And, and, and what about getting the local community on board? Was that a big part of it? Yeah, well, we did a really extensive, you know, consultation, and we kept going with that. There was a there was a you know, broad level of support. We did a big independent referendum, majority in favour, a big turnout. You know, there was opposition, um, but really that kind of went away over the years. And certainly now that the project's up and kind of helping to deliver something locally, that opposition has disappeared. The way we also engaged people as part of the wind farm you know business model was we donated shares to local groups local community groups um because obviously we're in a low income ex coal mining area people haven't got a lot of money to invest in a in a co-op share offer even if the, you know the shares are 50 pounds each but we wanted local people to, to participate so you know the old age groups rugby clubs football clubs other local charities we donated over a hundred thousand pounds of shares in the wind farm and also in egni as well to those groups so they get a, an annual return if the wind farm and egni perform but also almost more importantly they have a, a voting right at the agm you know the children in the schools can get an idea of how co-ops can contribute so it's a really good tangible learning experience for everyone really about how we can jointly tackle climate change and when you look at the opinion polls uh, onshore wind is actually very popular uh, solar is popular 
But how much does this create extra buy-in from people, this, this sense of ownership? I, I, I think more and more, because people are becoming more aware of it. I think locally, people can see that the, you know, the old school, it would have been knocked down and turned into housing. And that would have happened if the wind farm wasn't there as a local asset. So I think it is really important. And I'm sure that projects like Lawrence Weston as well are going to help change that. If you were just to talk to residents, is, is there a sense of this being an endeavour that benefits collectively because often when we're talking about uh, climate it can be with this what do we need to sacrifice what what do we need to do to get to net zero i think there's a lot of people that that know that we've you know spent a long time fighting for the for the wind farm and then can see tangible benefits coming from it you know things we also run an electric community transport scheme so a lot of people use that we we almost sometimes don't bang on too much about the wind farm either you know some people just want to just sort of use the services and and you know yeah occasionally then they'll look up they, i mean it's so visible they can see the turbines on the hill you know people have got different ways of engaging in climate change and the work in schools the children get very passionate about that they see the examples of Greta Thunberg and want to do something and can really you know talk to the caretaker and the head teacher as why is the heating coming on at three o'clock in the morning because they can see it in the data mm. you know people have got different motivations different time but it's just one way of engaging people in climate change but I, I think a really effective way and if people are listening to this and they think oh you know we would love to have something like that in our area how should they start yeah, there's some really good umbrella organizations now community energy england and community energy wales community energy scotland you know look on their websites for resources and examples of who's done what there's quite a few sort of mentoring schemes out there as well so you can get advice on how to take projects forward so whereas we kind of had to very much almost invent it ourselves back in 1998 you know, there is a better trodden path now to kind of take these projects forward for people. Fantastic. Well, look, Dan, you are definitely a trailblazer. You are definitely a reason to be cheerful. Uh, and we are really grateful to you for joining us. Thank you both. So I think this is an inspiring set of conversations, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it, it really feels glaringly obvious that whatever the, the problems that exist in a community or a society are the people who know what they are the best, the people affected by them. And then it follows that probably those are the people with the best ideas about how to fix them. And it's funny because, you know, as we are drawing this chapter of the podcast to a close, one of the big ideas that I will take away from all this is that the, the more you give power back to people um the better the solutions are going to be and the better things are going to work i mean i must say i found speaking to freud the first uh, conversation we had it was really just such an inspiring conversation he's fantastic isn't he yeah freud is fantastic and it also took me back to my citizens uk training and there is just something you know so much of the world can feel disempowering for people. There's something just incredibly empowering about their methodology, which is to say, not in a naive way, but to say, you know, people can make change happen in their community and and you're much less alone than you think and you have more power in a way than you think. 
And there is a sort of an energy to that, which is just quite, well, I just genuinely find inspiring. I think the other thing that comes out of this is from both Emily and Dan is the the incredible wisdom, insight, sort of capacity in all communities and, and, and just needing to unleash it, whether it's the work that Emily is doing with Jason Stockwood in Grimsby or Dan's renewable energy, Dan's community, which now gets whatever it is, a million or something a year, to be able to you know rebuild the school to do all these other things that they're able to do and generate sort of income and if you like you know have power for themselves and none of this takes away from the need for sort of change that comes from the top but bottom-up change is also an essential ingredient for the for the change we need and i think in a way with the reason we did this episode is to sort of say to people look you too can not in a flippant way but you too can make change happen It can often feel quite overwhelming, but there are ways to make change happen. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Whoa, ho, ho, we're in the outro, ho, ho. We are ho, ho, ho. And I just did want to read out an email we got, which um, is really, no doubt you will find inspiring. Hi, Ed and Jeff. Last Saturday, we visited a pumpkin patch at a Chesterton farm, Lawrence Kirk, Aberdeenshire, with our daughter Helena and grandson George. In the Farm to Fort Cafe, we spotted the following notice board. Build your own toasty. Hold the faith, Ed, as your dream lives on in Aberdeenshire. And they've provided a sort of picture of the Build Your Own Toasty sign. I mean, can you just see, Jeff, you know, that the, the podcast has no doubt inspired many people over the years. And obviously, the Make Your Own Sandwich Revolution it may be slow, it may be incremental, but it is growing. I have a number of questions here. Go on. The first one is the photo shows a sandwich board, no pun intended, which says Toasties build your own and then list the yeah. options. Yeah. There, there is no evidence that people are getting in there with their filthy hands. It just seems that they're given options of what they want on their Toasties, like what you might get at many of the cafes <laughs> up and down the land. Oh, I see what you mean. I'm just looking to look at the... I can't see the deep... I'm, I'm going to go to the... I'm going to sort of... I think I need to go to the... Zoom my, in. Yeah, zo- I need to zoom in. I need to... I need to. Uh, just give me a second to zoom in. Right, oh, I've got it. I've zoomed. Right, I've zoomed. Hmm. Because this, this sign very much suggests to me, you go up to the counter, you tell them what individual components you want in your toasty, and, and they build it for you, having adhered to the various hygiene regulations that are in place. I mean, even in our penultimate episode, you feel the need to rain on rain on my parade. <laughs> I mean, I think your therapist would have something to say about that. <laughs> you could have chosen to humour me. You could mm. have chosen to say, mm. yes, Ed, I think you might be right. I think this is real evidence of reason's impact. You chose the wrong path. If you want to surround yourself with sycophants who just agree with everything you say and any idea no matter then it's time to end the podcast definitely exactly (laughs) completely that is how do you you obviously got to know me extremely well (laughs) i'd like to thank our guests Froy legaspi emily bolton and dan mccallum now before we finish uh yeah it is rachel's last episode working on the podcast it is I know. This is one of the, you know, it's not one of it, it's the, the hardest thing about yeah. taking this decision to end the podcast in its current form. And we want to say thank you to Rachel. She has just been brilliant, the best 
over this past, I'm guessing it's about 18 months or something like that. And it's just been a delight working with her. And I look forward to watching her soar. Hopefully not in the make your own sandwich industry. I mean, people do tend to soar after they leave our sort of orbit, don't they? Does that make us an incubator or does it mean we were holding them back? I think it, I think the la- probably the latter. But no, Rachel has been absolutely phenomenal. We have been so, so, so lucky to have her on the podcast. And uh, we will really miss her intelligence, her wisdom, her humour, her values. And I know she will go on and do brilliant things. And she undoubtedly will miss our indecisiveness about what we want to do on the episode until the last moment. My technological hopelessness. Uh, the, uh, technical hopelessness. Yeah. Last minute diary changes. Yeah. Uh, unreplied to text messages. You don't need to keep going, but yeah, okay. you all, all, all the rest. So a massive, massive thank you to Rachel. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'll miss you both very, very dearly as well. Well, don't be a stranger, Rachel. Unless you want to, then then be be a stranger. And I understand all the reasons why you might want to be a stranger. Uh, But thank you to Rachel, who has been a brilliant content producer, supported by Goldfish, Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dents. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. 